The book, To End All Wars, is the true story of a man called Ernest Gordon who came to faith in a Japanese prisoner of war camp in uh, World War II. Uh, Ernest was befriended in this camp by uh, a Scottish soldier called Dusty. Uh, Dusty was a Christian and uh, Dusty uh, witnessed to him uh, but he also uh, cared for him. Uh, when Ernest was at the, uh, the brink of death, Dusty nursed him back to health and actually gave up his own food to feed Ernest. Dusty was eventually killed by the prison guards when he volunteered to take the place of another prisoner who had tried to escape. I don't know whether Dusty knew or not that the penalty for this was death, so Dusty died a martyr, um, reflecting the Lord that he served. In the movie adaptation of the book, which is really worth seeing, called To End All Wars, As Dusty is feeding Ernest on his bed, he says to him, a man can experience an incredible amount of pain and suffering if he has hope. When he loses his hope, that's when he dies. Hope is central to the Christian faith. Without hope, our faith is pointless. If In Christ we have hope in this life only. We are of all people most to be pitied. Notice that Paul here says that we can have a semblance of hope or a partial hope that's limited only to this life. But it's not really true hope. Hope cannot have a cut-off point. It must extend further than this life. If if hope is to be true hope, it must have an eternal dimension. So, what is your hope as a Christian? Uh, Peter tells his readers, always be prepared to give a reason to anyone who asks you for the reason for the hope that you have. What would you say if someone asked you, what is your hope and what is the reason for your hope? Verse 24 of our passage this morning says, For in this hope we were saved. Now this is another one of those precious promises that we are to remind ourselves of whenever we struggle with sin. So it's the fourth one we've seen. Firstly, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. Secondly, Anyone remember? You are not of the flesh but of the spirit because the spirit of Christ dwells in you. The third one, the spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God and by him we cry out, Abba, Father. And this one, uh, we have a hope for in this hope we were saved. Even in the midst of temptation, and of sin, there is hope found in Christ. But what does Paul mean by this phrase, in this hope you were saved? Well, he probably means several things. 
Firstly, the message of the Gospel is infused with hope. So much so that those who hear the Gospel receive such a strong sense of hope that they, they cannot but respond by putting their faith in the Jesus who gives hope. This is because the Gospel is not just the news of what God has done in Jesus Christ, but it is also the news of what God will do in Jesus. The Gospel was simply a list of things to aspire to. It wouldn't be a Gospel. It wouldn't be news. But it would also not give any guarantee of hope. If our future depended upon our success or failure, then it might be your wishful thinking, but it certainly isn't hope. So the Gospel declares what God has done in Jesus Christ and what he will do in Jesus Christ. An ancient part of Christian worship included the phrase, Christ has died, Christ has risen, Christ will come again. There is an essential future element of the Gospel, an element of hope. And if that's taken away, it's no longer the Gospel. As I said this morning as we took the bread and drank the cup, we declared the Gospel because we proclaimed the Lord's death until he comes. I suspect that one reason why many people reject or just simply ignore the Christian message today is because they think that Christianity, like all other religions, is just about being a good person, about living a good life in the present. And we maybe haven't done such a great job in proclaiming the hope we have. There's even a a church movement whose slogan is your best life now. If this is the best life now, heaven's not going to be that great, is it? Maybe maybe we're afraid of coming across as irrelevant or a little bit strange if we talk too much about things like life after death, the end of the world, the return of Christ and so on. Doesn't sound very scientific, does it? No one, we're told, has ever been able to prove that there is anything else beyond this life. So we can be tempted just to talk about the benefits of knowing Jesus Christ for this life only. And we risk in the end sounding no different to any other kind of self-help or self-improvement program. We shouldn't be ashamed of the hope that we have that goes beyond the grave. In fact, even, even though our culture generally says this life is all there is, so you can only have hope for this life only, most people instinctively don't believe that. Go to a funeral and people will say things like, she's now looking down upon us or he's now with those that he loves. There's something within the human heart that says there's more than this life. 
Just the other day, Barry Gibbs, who was the last surviving member of the Bee Gees, uh, was given a knighthood. He's now Sir Barry Gibbs. And when he was speaking about this experience of being knighted, uh, one thing he said about his two brothers who have both passed away, he said, I hope and pray that they are aware of what has happened and that they are proud. I believe in that. Now the media is happy to report that because it was a celebrity who expressed some kind of hope about life after death, that his brothers who died many years ago are still somewhere and still around and still aware of what's happening. The Gospel tells us that death and life after death isn't a shadowy unknown, a wishful thinking. It is a solid, definite reality which for those who know the Father through his Son Jesus Christ is a reality of life and joy and peace. So don't be ashamed to speak of the hope that we have. The second thing I think Paul means by this phrase, in this hope you're saved, is that the hope that we have is actually the thing that saves us. I don't mean by that that it's the act of being hopeful that saves us, but the the thing that we are actually hoping for, the thing we are looking forward to, will be the completion or the consummation of our salvation. To have our eyes fixed on that is to fully grasp the full nature of our salvation. So what is this thing? What is this thing that we fix our eyes on in hope? Paul says, verse 23, we wait eagerly for adoption as sons. The redemption of our bodies. We saw last week that the body is important. It's not a bad or substandard thing to be discarded, but it's part of God's good creation. It's an essential part of who and what we are. The body is something for which the Father has good plans. His plan is to clothe it with immortality so that in these bodies we will be equipped to live in the new creation. The redemption of our bodies is another way of saying the resurrection of the body. When Jesus appears in glory, he will appear in his body. The same body that was in Mary's womb. The same body that walked the streets of Galilee, that hung on the cross, that was buried in the tomb and which Thomas touched when he saw him and said, My Lord and my God. And when we see him, we will be transformed, not just in mind and spirit and soul, but physically in our bodies. We will be like him. Paul says, 1 Corinthians 15, We shall all be changed in the moment, in the twinkling of an eye, at the last trumpet. For the trumpet will sound and the dead will be raised imperishable. And we shall be changed. For this perishable body must put on the imperishable and this mortal body must put on immortality. When the perishable puts on the imperishable 
and the mortal put on immortality, then shall come to pass the saying that is written, Death is swallowed up in victory. O death, where is your victory? O death, where is your sting? The sting of death is sin and the power of sin is the law, but thanks be to God who gives us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ. This is the hope in which we were saved. That we will not only be justified and free, realities that we know now, but it will be the end of death because the sting of death, which is sin, will be finally erased as our bodies are renewed and will no longer be subject to weakness and temptation. When we face problems with our bodies, our bodies get old, they get sick, they get injured and they die. When we face that, uh, we have no reason to lose hope because these bodies one day will be renewed. If you don't like your body, get used to it because you'll have your body for all eternity. There's a third aspect of this phrase, in this hope you were saved. The word saved means much more than simply rescued. Sure, we are saved from sin and death. We are saved from the wrath of God. But we're not just saved from something. We're also saved to something. To be saved means to be kept safe, to be preserved. Imagine I saw you drowning in a river. What would I do? One thing I should never do is simply call out to you, start swimming and you'll be okay. That would be salvation by works. The fact that you're drowning shows that you can't just suddenly acquire the skills to swim and save yourself. Isn't it wonderful that when we were drowning in our sin, the Father didn't just call out to us, start swimming, get yourself out of the mess of your sin. Instead, in Jesus Christ, he dove into the water and he grabbed us and he pulled us out. I hope that what I would do if I saw you drowning in a river, that I would jump in, grab you, rescue you, pull you out. But it wouldn't be that helpful if after I'd pulled you out, I simply left you on the riverbank, cold and shivering and in danger of falling back into the water. I may have saved your life, but in order to save you properly, I would give you a blanket and I would put you in my car and I would take you to your home and I would ensure that you were safe and warm and dry. And if I was a really good friend, I'd offer to pay for swimming lessons and I would urge you not to go back into that river again. To be saved means not only rescued but preserved, kept safe. 
And this means that this hope in which we were saved, the, the future hope of the resurrection of our bodies, it has direct implications not only for our future but for the present as we journey through our lives towards that destination. Now in our passage there are three ways we see in which the Spirit brings the reality of this sure hope to impact on our lives in the present as God is keeping us safe and taking us to that goal. Firstly, in suffering. In verse 17, we saw last week, we are children of God, and if children, then heirs, heirs of God, and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him, in order that we may also be glorified with him. Now at first glance this might seem like a conditional thing as if suffering was essential to salvation. If you don't suffer then you won't be saved. And that's what some people have thought in the past. So medieval monks would deliberately seek out suffering. They would walk around in bare feet in the snow. They would even whip themselves thinking that if they increase their suffering then somehow they would increase their holiness and they would reduce their time in purgatory and thus somehow ensure or secure their salvation. But the operative words here is not provided you suffer but the words with him provided you suffer with him. Because suffering is inevitable. Everyone who lives in this world will suffer to some degree. Even if some people's suffering might seem trivial compared to the horrific suffering that others have to endure, we will all suffer. So the the critical question isn't will I suffer or not, but when I suffer will I face my suffering in union with Christ. In Jesus Christ, God has entered into and united himself with us in our suffering. If someone ever asks you the question, where is God when I suffer? The answer is, God is in Jesus Christ. Suffering, entering into your pain. He's sharing your suffering And in Jesus Christ, God himself goes to the cross where he experiences the worst suffering that a human being can ever experience. The suffering of complete abandonment by God. So where is God when we suffer? He's with us. He is one with us in our suffering. Jesus is one with us and we are one with him. What that means is that all of our suffering is transformed because it has a purpose. See, Jesus' suffering resulted in glory and if we are with him then so too will our suffering result in glory. And when that glory comes 
all of our suffering, suffering will fade into insignificance in comparison to that. Now we see a picture of this in the creation uh, as Paul brings it out in verses 19 to 22. We're told that creation was subjected to futility. Now the word that Paul uses here is the Greek word that's used to translate oh, sorry, wrong verse there. It should have been 1 verse 2. Ecclesiastes 1 2 where the preacher says vanity of vanities vanity of vanities all is vanity. He uses that word five times just in that one verse. The word, uh, it, in the NIV it's translated meaningless. All is meaningless. But it doesn't quite mean meaningless. It's the Hebrew word that means empty or transitory. Like your breath on a cold day. You breathe out, you see it and then it disappears in a moment. As James says, you do not know what tomorrow will bring. What is your life? For you are a mist that appears for a little time and then vanishes. That's the word that Paul uses here when he says creation was subjected to vanity, to futility. When God subjected creation to futility, it means he put a use-by date on it. The world as we know it will not be this way permanently. There is a change coming and all of the groaning of creation, the death and decay, the natural disasters of earthquake and storm and famine and flood, as well as the seeming pointlessness of so many things that happen in this world, is all actually the groaning of birth pains. All of creation anticipate its eventual liberation from this futility, this emptiness. And this liberation will come when finally humanity is restored to our rightful place as rulers and stewards of creation when Jesus appears. Just think, this creation, much of which we still enjoy and celebrate in all its beauty and all its majesty and all its pleasure, this creation is under a curse. It is subjected to futility. It's limited in its capacity to be the creation that God made it to be. And so while we still see glimpses of God's glory in creation, it's not yet filled with glory from corner to corner as it will be on that day when Jesus appears. The joy and the pleasure that we find in creation now is just a fraction of what we will know when it's finally set free from its bondage to futility. So all of this groaning of creation has a goal. It's a hopeful groaning. It's not the groaning of pain and hopelessness and the hope of creation is tied to the hope of humanity just as creation's groaning of suffering is hopeful so too is our groaning see in verse 
23, we're told that we too groan. This groaning of anticipation, waiting eagerly for the redemption of our bodies. Nothing in our lives is wasted. If we are in Christ, nothing is wasted, not even our suffering. Secondly, this hope in which we are saved, the reality of that comes to us in prayer. In verse 26 we're told that we don't know what to pray because we're weak and we do not and cannot know the will of God by our own efforts. We have no hope of even praying, let alone praying according to his will, unless the Spirit comes to us and intercedes for us and if he prays on our behalf. This isn't just an occasional extra spiritual time when we're able to pray extra spiritual prayers or to pray in the tongues of angels or however we understand that. This is all prayer, full stop. All prayer is prayer in the Spirit with the Spirit interceding for us. Without the Spirit's help would never have the strength to approach the Father and his throne. It's the Spirit who gives us the confidence to do that. Because remember, what's the Spirit doing? He's testifying with our spirit that we are children of God. That's what gives us the confidence to come to his throne and ask whatever we need and to cry out, Abba, Father. So in the midst of creation's groaning and in the midst of our own groaning, what does the Spirit do? He comes to us and see what he does? He groans. He groans with us. This is God entering into our suffering. He transforms our groans of despair and loss into groans of anticipation and hope. When you experience the anxiety or the worry or the anger or the stress of life circumstances, turn it into an opportunity to pray. To pray for that circumstance or to pray for that person and you'll be amazed. You shouldn't be surprised but you'll still be amazed at how the Spirit turns our heart from anxiety to hope. Even if you still cannot see the light at the end of the tunnel in your circumstances, you know the one who does, who knows the end from the beginning and you know that your life is secure in his loving hands. In this life as we live in the hope in which we were saved, we have this great privilege of coming in prayer to the Father. One day we'll see him face to face and prayer, as we know it, will come to an end. In the meantime, prayer is our lifeline. In prayer we express our absolute dependence upon our sovereign and loving Father. Knowing that, I wonder why it is that we don't pray as much as we know we should. Maybe we just need to hear afresh the wonderful privilege it is and as well the clear clear command of Jesus to pray to our Father. 
Thirdly, this hope in which we are saved, saved impacts us in our everyday life. Verse 28, Paul says, all things work together for God. What does he mean by all things? Well, he means all things. Not just the good things and not just the bad things, but even those things that we think are inconsequential or not important to God. All things are connected through the loving will of the Father to contribute in some way to the goal that he has for us. The goal to be conformed to the image of his Son. Verse 29 tells us that he, Jesus, is the firstborn among many brothers which means that whatever happens to him happens to us who are in him by faith. Now verses 29 to 30 have been dubbed by theologians the golden chain. This chain begins with God's foreknowledge and ends with glory. This isn't some mechanical, automated process that God sets in motion and it just happens as cause and effect. It describes the personal, relational work that our faithful God and Father is doing in us from beginning to end, uh, in the past and in the present, in this life and in the future, as he brings to completion the work that he has begun in us. say that he foreknew us means not simply that he knows the future but that in eternity past he set his affection upon us before we even existed. He determined that he would have for himself a people who would be the objects of his love and he determined then that you would be among those people who know his love. Because of this love from the beginning, he also set the end in place and he made it as secure as the beginning. He predestined us. He gave us a destination. This destination isn't heaven. It's not even the new creation. The destination, we're told, is to be conformed to the image of his Son. The new creation will be the venue in which this will take place. But being like Jesus and knowing and seeing the Father face to face, that is our ultimate destination. So he foreknew us, he predestined us and because of this foreknowledge and because of this destination he does three key things for us in this life, in all things, as all things are working together for our good. Firstly he calls us, he does this through the gospel, the good news of what he has done for us in Christ and the hope that we may have in him. This is way of saying to us, come to me. He's calling us. Come to me and be forgiven and washed, 
clean of your sin and be adopted into my family? Are you thirsty? Come to me and drink. Are you burdened? Come to me for rest. Are you sick? Come to me for healing. Are you grieving? Come to me for comfort. To be called is not just to be brought to him, but it is also to be sent out by him. He calls us to, be, uh, to fulfil our mandate as his people, to be ambassadors for this love of Christ. So to be called by God means to have a life of purpose where all we do to serve him is infused with meaning and has a goal, has hope. And then when he's called us through faith in Jesus, we are justified, we are declared righteous with the Father's seal of approval on us where he says to us, as he did to Jesus, you are my beloved son, in you I am well pleased. This means that the Father stands by us. We could say he has our back in everything. And as we'll see next week, God is for us and so no one can be against us. We have an assurance that when we stand before the judgment throne of Christ we will hear the words Come, you who are blessed by my Father inherit the kingdom prepared for you from the foundation of the world. That's what it means to be justified. And then finally, now through all things that are working together for good we are being glorified, step by step he is restoring us back to what we're created to be as 1 Corinthians, uh, 2 Corinthians 3.18 puts it we with unveiled faces unveiled so that we can see who God is beholding the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image from one degree of glory to another for this comes from the Lord who is the Spirit. When that work of glorification that he's doing in us now, when it's complete, we will be complete because we will see Jesus in his complete glory. This has to change everything for us. Knowing this, We can't trudge through life with our heads hung, stoically enduring as if everything is pointless. This hope in which we are saved must infuse and invade every aspect of our lives. Not only so that we'll know hope in all things, but also so that we might be the heralds of this hope to those around us and to this world in need. Let's pray. And in fact, I'll uh, I'll pray and then I'll open it up for anyone who would also like to pray in response um, and also to intercede for those that, particularly let's pray this morning for those that we know need to hear of the hope that we have in Christ. Let's pray.
Father, you have saved us in this hope, this hope that one day we will be transformed in our bodies and in the totality of who we are as we see Jesus face to face and as you finally and fully restore us to the fullness of what you have made us to be, your people reigning with Christ over this creation, this creation that will one day be renewed and will be filled with your glory as the waters cover the sea. Father, we pray that we might be a people who live in hope. We pray that our friends and families and neighbours and others will come to us and say, you're different, you have hope. Please tell me, what is the reason for this hope that you have? And when those times come, Father, we ask that we might have your words to speak that we might be faithful ambassadors of this hope, that we might speak the words of life and truth and peace uh, to them when they ask us. Father, fill us also in our hearts and our minds with the assurance that we are secure in you, that every little thing in our lives, good or bad or inconsequential, are all part of your good working for good for us. Father, give us that hope and help us to live that hope, we pray in Jesus' name.